Okay, let's open up with a word of prayer, if we could, this morning. Our Father, we do give praise to your name. We rejoice at the privilege we have to come together as the church. Pray that all that was said in this class this morning would be pleasing to you, would edify the saints, Lord, that you would use your scriptures to teach us your truths, that we would understand them as you would have us to understand them. We would apply them to our lives in a way that would help us to be more righteous, that we would live lives that would be pleasing to you. Father, that's our goal, our desire. We uh, thank you just for the church and the opportunity to be together. Freedoms that we have are unspeakable, and we give glory to you for those. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is our 25th week, we're at a half year point almost, in talking about eschatology and things that pertain to the end. And we're in chapter 37 of Ezekiel. Um, We are looking at the very last uh, five or six verses of that chapter. Um, But I'd like to kind of just think in retrospective of what we've taught really for the last, I mean, we've been in Ezekiel 37 for four weeks, but really much before that in in chapter 34 where we saw Ezekiel change from speaking about the current situation in which they are, which is exiled to Babylon, Ezekiel still speaking the words of God, Um, The people not so much listening or understanding what he's saying, so he's explaining things as he goes along. And you'll remember that when this first started, when we first started to turn our attention, a lot of things have taken place in the, really the beginning of what I believe is the Millennial Kingdom to establish Israel as a nation and as the blessed nation of God. And we started out by looking that the first thing God does is he removes the spiritual leaders because they are not teaching what he would have them to do. They're not leading as he would have them to do. And so he removes those leaders and he himself becomes their shepherd. You remember this is the place where the scriptures speak of God gathering those who have been scattered. He nourishes those who are sick back to health. He binds up the broken, and, uh, and he strengthens them. And specifically, he does all of this, the scripture says, as he brings them back to their land. And then he talks about being jealous for their land and those things. And then we saw that he moves on, and he actually, once he's got all the, um, the scattered sheep together, he begins to judge between one sheep and another. And meaning he's calling some of them out. Those who are strong, he calls out. He keeps those who are lean and weak. He takes those who are eating the good pasture and drinking the good water, yet trampling down the rest of the pasture and muddying the water with their their feet. And he takes those and he removes those. He takes those who are strong enough to push with their shoulders and their sides and jab their horns at other sheep and he removes them. So God judges between one sheep and another and so he removes a significant number 
of sheep. He removes their leaders and he removes those who I believe the scripture is speaking of, those who don't care for any of the other sheep, meaning they're not his sheep really. They just care for themselves. They just take things for themselves and don't worry about the rest of the sheep. And he removes those. So what you're left with are those who are not as strong, those who are um, not in the best of health, those who are broken, those who've been trodden down, and those are the sheep of God. And the rest have been removed and called out. So all of those who make it to this millennial kingdom, who are true Israelites, don't make it into the kingdom of God. Some of them are removed because they don't truly believe. And so I believe that's what all that imagery is talking about. And so now God has those who are just his in, in the land and on the land. And then we see that the blessings of God begin to flow. He causes the trees and the shrubs to begin to put forth branches. Uh, he causes rains to fall on them. The, fe um, the fields are cultivated and produce a great harvest. And so there's plenty to eat. And that's one of the focuses, really, of the land of Israel in this time of the millennial kingdom is that they never again experience famine while other places in the world do experience famine that Israel never again does. And so there's plenty to eat. Then God blesses them and gives them a great increase in both animals and in people. And so this millennial kingdom, remember the streets will be like it was in Jerusalem during the, during the feast times where all the nation would come and gather in Jerusalem and there wouldn't be room in the streets to walk about. That's what it'll be like in the millennial kingdom. The cities, not just Jerusalem, but all the cities will be full of people. There will be a great abundance of people but yet a great abundance of harvest and animals and all to support those people so they never again go hungry. And so this is some of the focus. And then we saw over in chapter 36, one of the most remarkable passages, I think, in all of Scripture, where God talks about the salvation, um, really what I would classify as New Testament salvation of these people, that he first washes them with water, to cleanse them of all their, what the scripture says, filthiness and their idolatry. So that's the cleansing of their sins. He then um, takes out their heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh so that their desires change, their wants to change, their, um, their whole focus of their life changes because the heart seen as the seed of the soul, the, the mind, the will, and the emotions, that is totally changed not by the people but by God and then the third thing that he does the scripture says is that he puts his spirit within them just like New Testament believers today have the spirit of God dwelling within them to help them live lives that are more pleasing to God that would be opposed to sin and desire to please God so he does to these people who are in the millennial kingdom the Israelites who are in Israel he puts his spirit within them. And then the scripture says, not so that, but you know that's what it means, that they would walk according to his statutes and his ordinances. And the only way that anybody could possibly do that in a, 
ongoing, uh, increasing way would be that God would put a spirit within you and that you would grow in that righteousness. And so we see just the same things we talk about New Testament believers experiencing at the point of salvation. These same Israelites in the millennial kingdom experience the exact same thing. So I think it's a remarkable passage in chapter 36 when he talks about that. And then you remember that God does all that we've seen him do. Not for the sake of those who are receiving the blessings. That's not why he's doing it. He says he's doing it. He expressly says it twice. That he's doing it for the sake of his own name. So that his name will no longer be profaned. Which it is today and always has been really. Since the time in which Ezekiel is speaking of. That people do not believe that God is who he says he is in the scriptures. And they profane his name. And God is going to do all of these blessings so that people across the world will understand that he can do whatever he well pleases and he'll do exactly what he said all through history that he would do. And they'll recognize him as the sovereign Lord and God. And there will be no question about it. No one will doubt it. A lot of people won't like it. Everybody in the millennial kingdom doesn't like God and want to serve him, but nevertheless, they will recognize who he is and what he's doing. And the, it'll be apparent because Israel will be esteemed above all other nations. They'll never again be scorned, and God himself will be in presence in the, in the nation of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple and on the throne seat. And so the whole world will know about this. Um, we'll talk about it one day. I mean, the nations will parade before the Lord Jesus Christ and give him honor, even if they don't like him. They don't believe who he is. They don't want to serve him. They still will parade before him and give him honor, which he is well due. They'll recognize him as the sovereign of the creation. So all these things that we've been seeing you know, you read them in pieces and parts, and it's kind of hard to see the whole picture. But that, that's the whole picture that we're talking about. And all of this according, I mean, I've thought about changing the study from eschatology to the grand plan of God. Because that's what it really is showing. It's unfolding the grand plan of God. We started all the way back in Genesis so we could trace the history of the land and what God says and and here, God speaking through Ezekiel multiple times says, I will bring these people back to the land promised to their ancestors. He says it over and over and over again. And so it's significant to God that all of this happens in the land that was originally promised to the patriarchs. So that brings us to chapter 37 that we've been looking at for several weeks now and you remember it has three specific prophecies in it the first one being the prophecy of the valley of dry bones personally i believe that's the resurrection of the old testament saints is what's being pictured there it's one of the methods that god uses to fill the cities with men is that you have all these old testament saints not those who believed in Jesus Christ after his ascension, but those who believed in Jesus or in the coming Messiah before he came, all of those saints are resurrected 
pictured in the Valley of Dry Bones, and those are mainly Israelites. I mean, not many people other than the Israelites believed in the one true God before Jesus Christ came. Most of them would have been Israelites, and so those people are resurrected, and they live in this blessed land during the Millennial Kingdom. I, I believe that mainly because nowhere in the New Testament is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints pictured or spoken about. And really nowhere in all of Scripture, other than mentioning they w it will happen, is it pictured in the graphic detail that is pictured in this chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 37, the first 20 verses or so. And so I believe that's the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, and they are in the Millennial Kingdom with the rest of the Israelites who live through the tribulation saved by God in a special place in the desert. And then we come to the second prophecy, it's the thing we looked at last time, which is the reunification of the nation. You remember we went back and we looked into First Kings and we saw where uh, under the reign of Solomon this, the, the kingdom was split into two kingdoms, two tribes going to the south, which would have been Judah and Benjamin, the other ten tribes staying in the north, which became known as Israel, the southern kingdom being known as Judah. And so... Um, and, and the most significant thing we saw about that, while men are acting and men are doing what they want to do, the scripture makes it very clear. God speaks it to the leaders of both sides that this division has happened because I made it happen. Not because of what people did or because they just did whatever they wanted to do. It happened by the ordination of God. And he makes that very clear. He says, quit fighting. Don't bring up arms against one another. Go your separate ways because this has happened because I wanted it to happen. And then now here, so at the end of the age, at the beginning of the millennial age, in order for Israel to be unified and to have one king over all the Israel. Israelites, it's necessary for them to be rejoined to one another, to be reunited, to, um, uh, for God to put them together as one people, because that leads into the third prophecy in, the chapter, in Ezekiel 37, which is the establishment of the Davidic kingdom. And so it's necessary for the whole nation to be not two nations, but united as one nation so that they can have one king and one God over them. And so as he brings them together and reunites them, then we moves into, Ezekiel does, into this prophecy that's given in verses 24 through 28 of chapter 37, which is the establishment of the Davidic kingdom. Now, um, of course, Ezekiel didn't know the name of who was going to be in charge of the Davidic kingdom, right? He didn't have any idea that someone named Jesus would come to the earth. He knew a Messiah was coming, but he didn't know what his name would be. And so God just gives him um, this 
name that my servant David, in verse 24, will be king over them. So this is the way that God introduces the fulfillment of what he told David through the prophet Samuel. Now, so I just want to read 24 through 28 of Ezekiel 37, and then we'll review some things that we've talked about previously, and then also look at what happens in this Davidic kingdom. So Ezekiel 37, verse 24, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David my servant will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So you have this establishment of one king over reunited Israel, which is experiencing all these blessings that we've been looking at for three chapters now, really four chapters now. And this is the most significant event that happens in all of the establishment of the kingdom because it sets their king who will rule over them and the whole world will recognize. Now, I clearly believe that when the Old Testament saints are resurrected, that King David will be one of them. Okay, because he was a true believer. He's a man after God's own heart. He did some things that were wrong, just as we all do some things that were wrong, but he did a lot of things that were pleasing to God. He clearly believed in God and that the Messiah would come and that God would fulfill his blessings. And so David will be in the millennial kingdom. He'll be one of the guys. But I don't think this speaks of David sitting on the throne. That's not what this is talking about. And we, we, can, we did this once before uh, when in chapter 34 we saw some similar statements made about God's servant David. But I want to do it again just so we make sure that we get it right and we understand why we believe this is not King David who's sitting on this throne, but this is the Lord Jesus Christ who's sitting on this throne. And so I want to go back to 2 Samuel, all the way back to chapter 7. And this is the, the, the time here is when David, King David had um, established his own house in the city of Jerusalem. He built a great house for himself. And he, um, he saw that the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, at first David did not allow the Ark of the Covenant to come into the city of Jerusalem. And then finally he came to his senses and he said, yeah, that should be here in the city. And so they brought it into the city, but it still was housed in the original tents that were constructed when Moses 
had the, was alive and led the nation and they built the tabernacle. It still existed. It's still in place here. And David looked at it and said, I want to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. And Nathan said, go ahead and do what's in your heart. And then God spoke to Nathan and Nathan spoke to David and said, you can't build the house. You don't get the privilege to build the house. Solomon or the one who follows you will build the house. And so uh, what David did, David got together all the wealth that was required to build the house. And, and one day we'll study that. It's a marvelous passage of scripture where the people gave superfluously out of, out of their heart gave more than was needed, and um, it's a great house of wealth that Solomon then used to build the temple. Um, and God supernaturally, if you read the scriptures carefully, you'll find this, God supernaturally gave David the plans for the temple. And so Solomon built the temple according to the plans that God gave to David. So David experienced a lot of the blessing of the temple and gathering together the riches and getting the plans directly from God given to David of what the temple should look like but not getting the privilege to build it. So Solomon gets the privilege to build it. But here in that passage, when, when Nathan tells David, no, you cannot build the house, then this, this language takes place that I believe speaks of the distant future. In, in verses 8 through 17 of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is this statement from Samuel to David that came from God directly that speaks of what God's going to do in David's life and to his posterity. And there's a couple of verses in here that I want to pick out. Verses 10 and 11 and 16 and 17 that I believe speak of the future and so in the distant future. And so in 2 Samuel 7.10, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Talking to David, the Lord will make a house for you. Now the nation resting from all its enemies, never been true through the history of Israel, right? Until you get to the millennial kingdom. And then over and over and over again, the scriptures say, and they will live securely in their land, meaning they won't have any enemies who could come against them. They'll live securely in their land. So that's what's being spoken of here. And then to David, he says, the Lord will make a house for you. Then you drop down to verse 7, 16, and he says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So there's the promise to David that your house will be established forever. And you could just as well say your throne or your kingdom or whatever word you want to use there for house um, will be established forever. 
and your descendants will dwell on, in that house forever. Now, you go, well, that could mean a lot of different things until David follows these statements of Nathan with a prayer to the Lord and tells us what his understanding of what God just said is. And so it's very important that you read the prayer of David so you can understand what his understanding of what was just said to him is. People tend to miss that. And so you look down, and, and David goes on here. You ought to read this prayer because, it, I mean, I'm tempted to read the whole thing because it is marvelous of how he ascribes honor to God for what he's going to do. And so, but let's just read 18 through 21. This is the beginning of the prayer. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to, your, to let your servant know. So David knows that God is not talking about something that's going to happen in a few years or just down the road. He says, way out there in the distant future, this, this which you are promising me will be fulfilled way out there in the distant future. Now, Ezekiel writes 400 years after this passage. So you could say, well, that's a long time. It is. But Ezekiel speaks of it still being in the future. So Ezekiel knew that what was promised to David was not fulfilled in his day because they're not even in the land. They're in Babylon, in captivity, exiled, the whole nation. There's no one left back in Jerusalem, and it's desolate. So Ezekiel knows that it's not being fulfilled in his lifetime. And so and he writes about these things. And so David says, way out there in the distant future, you're going to do these things. Now, look down in verses 30 through 32. Well, excuse me. Look in 25 through 29 to see David's full understanding of what's being said to him here. So in 25, Now therefore, O Lord God, the word you have spoken concerning your servant in his house, confirm it forever, and as, you, and as you have spoken, that your name might be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of the hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing may your, the house of your servant be blessed forever. Now, notice the two reasons that God does this. 
He says in, in verse 26 that, the, that your name may be magnified. Same thing God's saying of why he's restoring Israel. That people will know that I am the Lord. David says, so that your name might be magnified, do this thing for your servant. And then notice he says, down in verse 29, that it may please you. Meaning God does whatever pleases him. And no one can thwart his purposes or what he plans to do. And so David understands that God's talking about the distant future and he's going to do it for his own name's sake that he might be magnified and that it might please him. The very same things we see Ezekiel saying. That the reason God is doing these things is to magnify himself. This is the grand plan of God. How does he get the greatest glory to himself? He does exactly what he said he would do when the whole world believes he can't. That's how he gets the greatest glory to himself. Now, just to make sure that we understand, you know, people say, well, Israel disobeyed God and they didn't do what they were supposed to do, so God removed all the promises he had gave to them, and the church has replaced Israel, and all that that people say, well, Psalm 89 says not so much. So look at Psalm 89, where we're talking about the same promises. Psalm 89 is written really all about David. It's not written by David, but it's written about David. And it's just a few verses I want to pick out of here. Um, the, whole, the whole psalm is about King David and what's going to happen to his posterity. But verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 89. I've made a covenant with my chosen. You'll see this is David. And I've sworn to David my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Okay? So for all generations. But he says more than just that. Because he, he goes down and he speaks of the judgment that comes against Israel later. Okay? And so we'll see this down in Psalm 89, verses 30 through 32. If his sons, David's sons, Forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments. If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with the stripes. Now that in some portion, maybe in all portions, but at least in some portions, was done by King Nebuchadnezzar. It was clear that the nation of Judah went astray. And did great immoralities before God. You remember the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel details those immoralities and that judgment is coming until finally in chapter 33, Jerusalem has fallen. They've been decimated and the people aren't taken to Babylon. They're slaughtered in the land. They don't get a whole host of people and take them off like they did in the first two deportations. These people are all slaughtered and killed. And as they try and run into the land of the Edomites, the Edomites push them back so that Nebuchadnezzar's troops might slaughter them, even more of them. 
And so this is the judgment, this is the rod that came upon them, at least in some portion, because of their iniquity. So right there, you're speaking about the present situation that Ezekiel finds himself in. But then notice what the scripture goes on to say in verse 33. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, from David, nor deal in my falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the, in the sky is faithful. So right there we get God's going to judge the nation because the sons of David violate the, the ordinances of God. They do great abominations before him, yet God will not lie to David. His covenant is still established. It will still happen as God had promised to David. And the scripture is clear. I don't know how you could miss that, um, but many do. The scripture is extremely clear that the covenant that God made to David through the lips of Samuel is established forever, even if Israel goes astray. Doesn't change the covenant that God made with, with um, David. So those who say, well, Israel wasn't faithful, they fell, and so something has replaced them, what do you do with Psalm 89? I mean, it's, it's extremely clear, is it not? that one of the descendants of David will sit on the throne forever. Now, we all know that Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. I mean, Matthew gives us excruciating detail of the people, the lineage, that came even before David, through David, down to Jesus Christ. And then Luke does the same for us. So we have two genealogies that lead to Jesus Christ coming through David. And so Jesus Christ is the descendant of David. God didn't tell Ezekiel what that name was. He just said, my servant David. Meaning that the promise I gave to David will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And the one who fulfills it, Jesus said this multiple times, and so do the rest of Scripture, that Jesus Christ is the one who was promised, who came, and who in this time in the millennial kingdom will reign on the throne of King David. It will be reestablished. The Davidic covenant that God gave to David right here is ratified in the millennial kingdom in Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28. God's servant David, who led to Jesus Christ, is established as the king of the Israel millennial kingdom. And he'll sit on the throne that will be in the temple. And so, I think it's pretty clear, it's not a stretch, to say that this king, the ser my servant David, will be king over them, is talking about Jesus Christ, who descended from King David, 
who fulfills ultimately the promise given to King David. I mean, and you're, we're now 3,000 years removed from when that promise was given to King David. But God says, even if Israel falls and goes astray, that covenant still continues and will ultimately be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And the whole world will be astounded and say, we thought that was all null and void because of Israel's disobedience. And God will say, no, my word that I spoke, I will not lie. It is established forever. So that's what's going on here in Ezekiel 37. Is Jesus Christ being installed as the king over all Israel. And so it's a marvelous passage. It, it, you think about it, you, do, you bring all the nation together, you reunite them, you give them all these multitudes of blessings, you keep only those who are faithful, you put your spirit within them, the whole, the whole um, nation is full of people and animals and there's great blessings and they never again go hungry and all these great blessings that are happening in Israel and not necessarily across the rest of the planet, but certainly in Israel. I mean, if he says they will never have famine again, does that not indicate that somebody else probably will have famine? I think so. Because he doesn't say the whole world won't have famine. He says Israel won't. And so I think there are some things going on in the rest of the world during the millennial kingdom, where iniquity, where risings up, have to be put down and squelched. And that's why the saints rule with Jesus Christ across the whole planet, is to keep that under control, to keep iniquity under control, where it doesn't rise up and have... Uh, pots of where it rains because Jesus Christ reigns and he does so through his saints across the whole planet and so but Jesus himself is enthroned in this passage in Jerusalem in the temple on the throne of David now just quickly let's look at the other things that are said here in verse 24 Jesus Christ is established as the king but notice also that the people live righteously in Israel. And why do they do that? How can they do that? Because the God has put his spirit within them. And that enables them to then live according to his statutes and ordinances. And then notice, I mean, how inescapable is this statement in verse 25? They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, which is the land that he gave to Abraham, which is the land that he gave to Isaac, and then gave to Jacob. All three of those men, God personally spoke to them and spoke about the land that was originally promised to Abraham. So how inescapable is that statement in Ezekiel that God will bring them back and they will live on the land promised to their fathers? inescapable and they will live on it and their sons and their sons forever and David my servant will be their prince forever there is the fulfillment of what God gave to David all right then you go on and in verse 26 God just saying this is what the kingdom will be like I'll make a covenant of peace with them 
It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So not only is Jesus Christ enthroned and sits on the throne of David, but God the Father himself is in their midst. And I believe it'll be like it was in the time of the tabernacle and later in the time of the temple that, Jer- that Solomon built, later in the time that the temple that Zerubbabel built, that the presence of God will dwell in the Holy of Holies in the city of Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. That there's still, I mean, it, it's very clear, we'll see it established in later chapters, that the temple is rebuilt, it is grander than it ever has been, and it still has the holy place and the holy of holies. And I believe that's where God the Father will dwell. And then he says it again in different terms in verse 27. My dwelling place will also be with them, and I'll be their God, and they will be my people. Now, I look back at these two terms that are translated as dwelling place, and sanctuary, and there really is no significant difference that I can tell between those two terms. They're just different ways of saying the same thing. It's, it's kind of like you and I would say that I live in my house, or you could point to it and say that is my home. They have a little different connotation, granted, but they're talking about the same place. That's what it appears that dwelling place and Um, sanctuary are kind of synonyms for the same place. Um, You can go look at that yourself. Maybe you come up with something different, but that's where I came out after I looked at it and dug into it, that basically they're the same place. And then the reason that God does any of this that we've talked about in Ezekiel all the way through is verse 28 here. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Why does God do this? So that the whole world will know. So that everybody will know that he is the Lord and will magnify his name, just as David said. You're you're doing this so that your name might be magnified. And in verse 28, his name is magnified. The whole world is astounded that God does this to Israel, blesses them in the way that he does, reestablishes them, pours out blessings on them, and then he himself lives in their midst. It will, the world will be astounded. And everybody will know. You know, will it be broadcast on CNN? Or, will, you know, how will the whole world? The whole world will know. They, every single nation will know that this has been done. And if no other way, then there are rulers over them who will be the saints, I believe. Chapter 5 of Revelation says we'll reign with them. There will be saints who believed in Jesus Christ during the New Testament age who will reign over them and speak these words to them. I mean, during the tribulation... You know, how is the gospel taken to every nation in the world? Not done by men. It's done by the angels during the tribulation time who are in the midheaven who cry out, give honor to God. 
Men don't, but they hear it, and the angels in the mid-heaven are the ones who tell them to do it, meaning the guy, they're in the air, they're in the atmosphere, up above the planet, all over the planet, saying, give glory to God in the highest, and people don't. And then we go through the end of the tribulation and usher in this millennial kingdom that we're talking about. One day we'll get, and we'll detail all of that. If the Lord wills and we live that long, we'll go through all of those details. And I've done that once before. Um, it's not crystal clear in my mind, but it's pretty clear that if you walk through all of those details, they match perfectly to what Ezekiel is, is talking about here. We'll go through Daniel next after we get through Ezekiel, but there's three more things to happen in Ezekiel. One is, uh, well, we've got to talk about chapters 38 and 39, that uh, Gog and Magog. We'll go through that. I'll give you what I think about that. And then um, you've got to have the temple described in excruciating detail for three chapters. The, the temple is described, and then you've got to have the ordinances given to the Levites, and we'll see all the sacrifices reinstituted. And then finally, the division of the land portion to the 12 tribes. All that's still going to happen in Ezekiel in the Millennial Kingdom. Um, and I'll just tell you, we'll go through um, all those measurements of the temple pretty quickly. Okay? Because you could spend your life there. Because there's so many details given. But we'll go through it pretty quickly and we'll compare it to the other two temples that we know that were built. And you'll see that's not them. It's much larger. So that's where we're headed, if the Lord wills, um, in future weeks. So and that's chapter 37. I appreciate your time.